0: listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at CBCofSavannah.org. And now, this week's message. Alright, we have been in a three-week, kind of a mini series for us. That's like the shortest series in the history of CBC. Um, and, and if you're New. What we usually do is we will open a book of the Bible and we'll work our way through chapter one, verse one, all the way to the end. That's kind of the, the norm. Um, that's what we do typically 51 out of 52 weeks a year. But one of the things we started in this new year, just because of the, I felt like the need to address some of these issues, is we, we started this series called Logos, which is just a series about the word of God. Because we wanted to kind of explain to you some of the issues re- around the scripture that you're constantly hearing. About, you know, what about all these quote errors and what about the, you know, there's all these manuscripts and there's all these other books and blah, blah, blah. And so we wanted you to to know about these things so that you would not be tossed to and fro and carried away by every wave of doctrine um, so that you're better equipped to answer, to be comforted in the fact that you can be absolutely certain that not only that what you have in front of you is the absolute word of God, that it is true, but that it has been carefully transmitted from the original languages to to your ESV, NIV, whatever it is, King James V, whatever. Message, Living Bible, go down the line, right? So that was one of the goals of this series. But the big goal, the big picture, the big reason we did it is is God has spoken and made himself evident through his word. And we want to be a church, not that just fills our head with apologetics, although those are helpful in circumstances, but that we, we draw near... To our God. our God is a God who is constantly inviting, whether he's inviting the disciples to come have breakfast, or to everyone, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, or to the church at Laodicea, open the door, I will come in and dine with you. He's constantly inviting, and we'll see in James that he invites us to draw near to himself, and he will draw near. And so one of the ways we do that is through his word. And the ultimate goal of this entire series, I told you up front, was love is that we would be a loving church. And how does talking about the Bible respond in love? Because if you understand what God has said and why he has said it and all these things, you will love him and know him more. And if you love God more with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have that personal relationship with him, you're walking intimately day by day, stepping with him, then you cannot help but reflect his love in the world and in our church. So that, that is what we've been talking about and that is why we've been doing this. Right? And we've looked at some big concepts, inerrancy, inspiration, transmission, canon. And today we're going to talk, as we kind of wrap this deal up, about interpretation. All right? You ever hear someone say this? Well, if all y'all Christians use the same Bible, then how come there's so many different interpretations of the Bible? Whose is right? Which denomination is right? The Baptists, the Presbyterians, the blah, blah, blah? Right? It's the non-denominationalists. They're the right ones. Right? <laughs> right? But which one is it? Maybe you've wondered those questions. And what I hope to do today is hope to answer some of those questions. Not you know, necessarily exhaustively, but at least that you have some idea of why there are denominations, why there are different interpretations. And ultimately, the goal is so that you and I would both be able to come to the Scripture for ourselves, like the Bereans in the book of Acts who search the Scriptures, that you would understand and you realize that you can understand and read the Bible for yourself. I don't care if you went to Georgia Public School. You can do it, okay? <laughs> you can read the Bible for yourself. You can understand it for yourself. God has written it. Believe it or not, the scripture was written in everyday ordinary language of its day, okay? The Greek is called Koine Greek, common Greek. It was the, the trade language of the day the Bible was written in, All right? The Old Testament Hebrew was the language they spoke. It wasn't some you know, lofty, it was written in plain language so that you and I could understand it. And you can do it. And so, hopefully, we'll give you some principles today um, on how to do so. Because this this gathering time, Sunday morning, all three services, it's great, it's important, but it is not the end all be all of Christianity. You get a 45 minute sermon once a week. If that's the only word that's ever kind of enters into your ears and enters your mind, then you're going to be a very weak Christian. You're going to be weak spiritually, you're going to be a hungry spiritual Christian. Because what we, 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 we want is a group of people when is that you guys go out and that you are walking intimately with God Tuesday afternoon and, and Thursday morning, right? We have too much Sunday morning Christianity going on. all right? And, and so although it is never actually commanded to read the Bible, the Bible never commands you to read it. okay? But what is commended in it is the, is knowing the full counsel of God and and meditating on the principles of scripture and and hiding the word in your heart and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are commended and we wanna be a body that's constantly doing this, that we're letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us, okay, as we go out into our lives uh, so that we're worshipers of Christ where we go. All right, so let's talk a little bit about interpretation this morning. Um, Why are there so many different interpretations? Why are there so many denominations, okay? Big picture reason is this, is because man is fallible. That's the the answer. Scripture is infallible. Man is fallible. Man's broken. And because there's brokenness, there's a potential to interpret falsely. And we'll talk a few reasons why. But understand this. Up until the Reformation, a couple hundred years ago, there really wasn't denominations. I mean, you had the Eastern Orthodox and you had the Roman Catholic, but you didn't have all these different denominations. And the reason why is because no one had the Bible except for the Roman church. And even if you did have a copy of the Bible, let's just say you got a copy. You couldn't read it because probably, number one, you were illiterate. And number two, it was in Latin. And no one could read Latin except, guess who? The Roman church. And that is what they wanted because they believed that they were the only ones who could rightly interpret the scripture. They didn't want just the average Joe teaching a Bible study. The only person who was allowed to and had the authority to interpret scripture was the Roman church, because this is what they did. They had their source of truth. The highest source of authority for them was not the Bible. It was the tradition of the church, the tradition of the church, then the scripture. So they could only rightly interpret scripture. You couldn't. They didn't want you to. All right. What happened is the reformer said, no, no, no. You guys got it wrong. Scripture goes over tradition, y'all. And so what the reformers did is they said, we want to get a copy of the Bible, one of the many things they did, in everybody's language. We want to put it in the vernacular of the people. And you had guys like Wycliffe and a bunch of these guys that got burned at the stake because they were doing that very thing. And Luther was one of the first to put the Bible into the language of the people. And the Roman church was saying, you cannot do that. If you give people Bibles, they'll interpret it for themselves. Yahtzee. Bingo, exactly. That's what they did. And thus came denominations. Because what people started doing is they started reading the scripture and say, we think, it me- this, we think this is what it means. And so you had groups of people that were based on their interpretation and understanding of scripture. So you had the, you know, those who followed Wesley and his teachings. Boom, the Methodists, boom. And you had the Lutherans who followed Luther. And you had this group over here. They said, we think that the church government should look like this. It's a Presbyterian form of government. Boom. And so they, that's the Presbyterians. And there's a group over here that baptism was all it. Right? And they liked altar calls, so they called them Baptists. Okay? So that was that group over there. And so you had all these different denominations. Basically, they are formed because they had different interpretations of Scripture. They right? say, so, well, again, it's the same Bible. Why they have all these different? Why they disagree on so many things? They really don't disagree on so many things. They disagree on a few things. That's the only thing we ever talk about. That's the problem with it. We agree on a ton of things. In fact, when you talk about deity of Christ, check. Salvation by grace through faith, check. Virgin birth, check. F- bodily resurrection, check. All the essentials that really matter. All these groups of people they agreed on. They just disagreed on on secondary issues. Is is, he, is there a rapture? Is there not a rapture? Is there should I dunk them? Should I roll them? Should I throw them in the water? What should I do? Those issues they're going to disagree on, but on the big picture issues they they don't disagree, and we still don't. With those in the Orthodox faith, you know we we'll have different functions and different things, but in the in the big things there's no disagreement. But let me give you some reasons why. And that's important. Here's why that's important. Because Paul tells us this, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That Christian people should be eager to maintain unity. I'm not talking about unity with people who are outside Christianity. I'm not talking about, let's just all hold hands, sing kumbaya, doesn't matter what you believe. I'm talking about those who believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins as a substitute, that he was God in a body, that he rose physically, that salvation is only him. Those who believe that, there should be an eagerness to maintain unity. Now, you may not go worship at their church, but these are the things we're not supposed to be always constantly debating, all right? And that's why we don't. We hold some things with a closed fist, Inspiration of scripture, salvation by grace through faith, substitution atonement. There's some things, pre this, post that, 4.7 point whatever, we'll open hand those. You want to argue about that? Go have fun. Enjoy yourself. And watch football. Go ahead. Okay? Because we're just not going to, we're not going to split hairs over those things. There's way too much going on for us to to be worried about that. All right? So unity is important, and and especially when it comes around those who are truly born again, those who hold to the Orthodox faith. But here's a couple reasons. This is not exhaustive, but this is a couple reasons why there's different interpretations of scripture. Okay, and and, and you you may understand some of these. Maybe you've been part of this. Maybe you've seen it. A uh, first one, maybe this is unbelief. Some people will wrongly interpret the scripture quite honestly because they're not born again right, because they don't have the spirit of Christ within them, because a natural man does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him, because they are spiritually appraised. And so you have some guys, they want to talk about scripture, and they want to interpret scripture, but they don't even believe it. So last week, if you were here, we talked about canon and transmission and all these things, and we, I mentioned a guy named Bart Ehrman, who is a liberal professor uh, from Princeton, and, and he writes all these books about the New Testament. He doesn't even believe in the New Testament, doesn't believe that Christ is God, doesn't believe anything, are you gonna follow that guy's interpretation of the scripture, a man who denies the very nature of it? I was talking to a lady yesterday from our church and she heard a pastor at one time say that Mary was a prostitute. Don't know if I'm going to their Christmas service. Just, tell, just telling you. It's not probably gonna be what I'm gonna be comfortable. So, if you have people that don't believe, you have people that are outside of the, of the faith, they're not gonna rightly interpret scripture because they don't have the spirit. Right? So that's one reason you'll see wacky different beliefs Another one is this pride and selfishness. Some people come to the text with an agenda they do they just they, they have their little pet peeve they got their one doctrine that they are the expert of the world in you know how many sticks were in the altar of David when he was up on the hill how, you know they'll email us what is your position on how many sticks were on the altar and I'll just email back usually please don't just don't come on Sunday This is not going to be the church for you, because no one here cares about how many sticks is on the altar. Now, you can have your own church, call it the how many sticks are on the altar church, and you can all be happy over there, but no one here cares about how many sticks are on the altar. But some people just have that kind of, that's what they want to do, and every time you get together, they want to talk about that, 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 and and their their selfishness, their pet doctrines, their agenda, they they skew uh, their interpretation, right? Another big reason is this ignorance of scripture as a whole. And so what you'll see is a person will take an obscure passage, one that could mean this, could mean this, and they'll build entire doctrines on it. So you see this when, for instance, in in 1 Corinthians 15, when there's passages and Paul says something about baptism for the dead. Quite honestly, scholars have no clue what that means. The Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, and the Corinthian church are probably the only three people that know what that means. Right? Because we're just 2,000 years from it. It was something going on then. And we don't know for sure. But people will build entire doctrines off of some obscure passage. But I, since I know the rest of Scripture, I, I may not know what it means, but I sure know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we should go to the graveyard and start sending people to heaven. It doesn't mean that. It cannot mean that. Because I have all these other Scripture verses that say to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Uh, you know, judgment comes after you die. All these other passages. So I know because I have the whole of Scripture. What it can't mean. And sometimes people will take an obscure verse that could say this, could say this, and they want to build a whole thing, and they'll just ignore the rest of Scripture. You see this all the time with those who will try to argue that you can lose your salvation. They'll come to a passage like this. All right, Revelation 3. And Jesus tells the church, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. See? God can take your name out of the book of life. Right there, there it is. First of all, that's not what it says. But it's just, it's it's like... See, there's, God's got his big eraser, and he's just waiting. You watch it, mister, because if you do this, he's just gonna go, whew, and you're gone, just like that, out of heaven. You better watch it, right? But that's not what, number one, that's not what the text says. But number two, I have a plethora, hundreds and hundreds of other verses that talk about the security of the believer, how you've been sealed, how, how the spirit is a down payment, how he's had your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the earth. I can go all over the scripture and show you the eternal security of the believer. So I can't be talking about this, but this is what happens when we're ignorant of the rest of scripture. Just take one little thing, it might say something like this, and we'll build an entire doctrine on it. Right, so knowing the rest of scripture is helpful in interpreting. Always interpret scripture with other scripture, always. Interpret what is unclear in light of that which is super clear, right? That's that's how you have a good interpretation. Then last, or not last, but this is a big one. An undue emphasis on tradition and experience. This is where we're all at. The reality is this, you are all biased people, and so am I. I was born in Philadelphia. By nature, I hate Atlanta Braves. That's just the way it is. is, Out of the hospital, they just injected me with something, and that is the way it was. You, if you were born in this state, by nature, are used to blowing it in the playoffs. That's the way it is, okay? (laughs) That's just just the nature of it, okay? I'm sorry. It's, It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. But. You have to understand that you come to the text, whether you know it or not, you come with a bias. You came from a tradition. You came from a background. You came from an experience. And it's fine. Just recognize that so that you don't let filter your interpretation of Scripture through that. right? Like Luther. Luther did an unbelievable job in the Reformation. But he came out of Roman Catholicism, so a lot of his interpretations are still very Roman Catholic. So he pulls away from transubstantiation, which was their view of the Lord's Supper, that it actually became the body, the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus. It actually changed, that's what the Catholic Church would say. And he says, no, 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 that's not true. It's consubstantiation. So he kind of halfways it. and says, it's not really, but it is. Which I don't even know what that means, but it doesn't seem that he got it from there. Where does that come from? It comes from his experience and his background, right? And so he lets that filter his interpretation, and here it is. And the only Lutheran church, for the most part, holds to that position in all of Christendom. All right? Here's another example. Some of you grew up in traditions, all right, where Jesus turning water into wine meant that Jesus turned water into grape juice. All right? It was, it was the very first batch of Welches right there. <laughs> That's your tradition because... Your church believes that all wine is evil and Jesus would never create something evil. Thus, he made Welch's grape juice. You don't need to raise your hand because I can see it in your eyes who you are, okay? <laughs> all right, so that, that, right? Some of you are like, mm-hmm, I've been there, okay? Others of you came from a tradition. Acts 16 is a great example, okay? The Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. And they went down, and the whole house was baptized. And you, thus, that meant that there was babies that got baptized. Right? Now, the text doesn't say there was many babies. But that's because you grew up in that tradition. Because, to, look, see, all the babies were baptized in the house. See how tradition can filter its way into an interpretation. Right? Some of you grew up in the second commandment. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. means don't cuss. Cussing ain't good, but do you think God on his list of top 10 sins that cussing's up in the number two spot? I don't think so, all right? Maybe number seven or eight, but not number two, all right? There's something greater, but why? Because there's a cultural sense to that. Cussing, yeah, don't take the Lord's name with me, all right? And so tradition, emphasis, uh, you know, experience, filtering it through that, you got to be aware of those things, okay? And then lastly, uh, and this is what we'll focus today, is a poor hermeneutic. And hermeneutic is a fancy theological word for meaning an interpretation of scripture. Hermeneutics is the, is the interpretation of scripture. Okay, that's what a theologian in a seminary would call it. Uh, and many people ha- have never been taught. They just kind of do their own thing. They treat the scripture as, they kind of pull the Holy Spirit flip every morning. Kind of, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? My bones are crushed. I need to go to the doctor. Right? That's what it means. Okay, okay. I mean, that's how we kind of approach the scripture. Right? And that's not a good way to do it. All right? That works like maybe once out of a hundred. at the best. Right? Or we'll over-spiritualize the walls of Jericho. That means that the walls of my heart are hard, and, and, and we kind of spiritualize or just kind of rip something right out of its context and make it mean... And, and those are bad hermeneutical principles. Or we're going to take the letters of Pharaoh's name and add it up to the number of plagues and the day, number of days. And that will show us the date of the rapture. You know, some like secret, you know, Orphan Annie Ovaltine code in the Bible. Okay, turn it to, you know, okay, what letter is it next? Oh, there it is. And, and the Lord's coming back on May 31st because, you know, no. Those, those are bad hermeneutical principles. So what we want to do is how, how can we be good students because everybody can be a student and read the scripture. Everyone can read it for themselves. And so what we've done is we've given you this this morning, okay? This is just a little resource, a little tool that we adapted, which is a fancy word for stole from another church, um, okay? Uh, hey, just being honest, this is the NIV version of theirs, okay? That's, they used arrows, we used hands. What's the difference, right? But what it is, it's a tool for some of you who may feel a little intimidated about reading the scripture. It's just a couple helpful steps to, to have a decent hermeneutic and to start reading the scripture for yourself and, and to start getting more out of it. Um, Okay, so we're going to work through this, and I'm going to try to give you a little bit of an example as we go. I've chosen a verse that kind of we've used before in our Bible study method stuff, Acts 1-8. It's one that in seminary, it's the first verse they kind of throw you in, and you do all these things when I was in seminary, and I'll just kind of show you how it might work on that verse, and we'll just walk through this little tool, right? I've sized it so it's the sack. If you took one of our free Bibles, it fits perfectly. If you got one of them little mini ones, I'm sorry, it's too big. If you got a big old, you know, whatever, it's perfect again, but just something to keep in there and use, all right? So let's walk through this, the seven hands of Bible reading, all right? And the first one is this. What is the main idea of the passage? What you wanna do is get to the the main idea of what the passage is saying. We always wanna jump to application. We always wanna jump to, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? Before you talk about what do you do, you gotta talk about what does it say? And so you're gonna need to spend some time in the text reading it patiently, repeatedly, meditatively, asking questions, looking for certain things, looking at key words, defining key words that you may not understand if it's a big theological word. Ask, who's this written, who's speaking here? Who's it speaking to? Uh, are there cause-effect relationships with the words? Is there, is there a purpose statement, like a so that, or in order that? Is there is there a cause-effect or a condition? If, this, then, and, and identifying those things, all right? Um, Try to summarize the entire passage, verse, whatever it is you're reading, into one little succinct sentence. If you can summarize it into one little sentence, this is the big picture. It's very helpful. In fact, that's, you want the secret to expositional preaching? Here it is. Every expositional sermon we preach is about one thing. If you, if you kind of go to the end, it's all about one thing. What we do is we basically do this. We take a passage and we summarize it into one point. Now, we might have subpoints that argue that, but that's, that's what we do. So basically, this is the first step of even preaching. What is the main idea of the passage, right? Okay, let's look at our little verse as a work, as a uh, example. Jesus is speaking. Okay, I'll give you that answer. He's speaking to the disciples. He's about to go back into heaven, but before he does, he tells them this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right? So me as a Bible student who's been doing this for 10 years now, I got all sorts of observations about this text that I see. I see it starts with a contrast. I see the U is plural. I see it's a future verse tense. I see power is a word that I might wanna, uh, I might wanna um, define because I wanna know what that looks like. I see deity, Holy Spirit is there. I see a cause or effect relationship. There's gonna be power, that's the cause, when the effect, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's a result as of that, too. After the Holy Spirit has come on you, what's the result? You will be witnesses, right? There's locations there. I'm going to look it up on up a map and see where that is. I know right now, just because I know the book of Acts, where are they located? They're in Jerusalem. So he's going to say, you're going to be my witnesses first right here, and then you're going to spread to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And so there's all these observations that I can make from this text, right? But the big idea, if I'm going to summarize this verse... I'm gonna say the summary, the main idea, the big picture is something like this, that Jesus promised his disciples power when they get the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. That's the big idea, okay? They will receive power from the Holy Spirit so that they can become, or resulting in them becoming, his witnesses, right? That's the big picture. That's the main idea, all right? And so once I've done that, then I'm gonna say this. Okay, what did the passage, this is number two, Mean to the original audience? See, this is the key question. We always, what does it mean to me? It doesn't matter what it meant to you. It cannot mean something to you that it didn't originally mean to the original audience. It can't mean something it never specifically meant. So you don't ask what it means to me. You ask, what did it mean to the original audience? Because even though the Bible is written for us, y'all, it was not written specifically to you. There is no book to CBC. There's no next letter that Paul forgot to put in there to the letter. To the church in Savannah, Georgia. These people, there were specific people in mind. He wrote the church, the book of Ephesus, Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He wrote to the to the church in Rome. The Gospel of Mark was written with a specific context in mind. The book of Revelation was written to a specific group of people. We'll see, James is written to the, the 12 Jewish tribes that are dispersed. The book of Joshua is a history book for the people of Israel, so they don't forget how they went into the land. All right, the, the, the monarchy and all the kings is all in written to the people of Israel so they don't forget about David and, and all these guys. And so there is a context that is going on. There is people in mind. And, and if you're going to understand it rightly, you have to, as best as you can, get in the original audience's mind. All right. Now, that's hard because we're living thousands of years. But if you don't, you'll be in danger of false interpretation. It, and we saw this in Revelation, a great, one of the most misunderstood passages when, when The church of Laodicea, when Jesus says, I would rather you be hot or cold, and you've heard of many a good sermon, I want you to be on fire for Jesus and hot for Jesus, and it has nothing to do with the passage. That's a 1983 interpretation. I doubt the apostle John is sitting there as an 80-year-old man saying, I want you to be fired up for Jesus on the island of Patmos. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I wish you were either hot or cold, because those things are useful. I don't want you lukewarm because you're useless there. But if you have your current context and you're just trying to apply it, you'll make it sound like anything you want it to sound like. So what does it mean? Ask questions like, who wrote this book? Who is speaking? Who's it written to? What is the purpose of the book being written? This is why we do expositional preaching and work through books so, so that there's a theme. This is often why we'll name our series too, so that you can kind of come back, oh yeah, that was about... Whatever. Ephesians was about identity and Joshua was about choosing this day and, and there's such things. All right? What are the circumstances going around? Take into account grammar. I know that scares some of y'all. You're like, that's sixth grade. Grammar is important. The, just because the Bible is a supernatural book doesn't, doesn't take away the fact that it is a book and it follows the rules of grammar. All right? There's laws of verbs and adjectives and all these things, and it follows them. There's figures of speech that uses all the time. You could say, well, I believe in a literal interpretation. Not absolutely you don't. Because if you did, when Jesus says, I am a door, you'd believe that Jesus is a door? Right? I don't see anybody walking around gouging their eye out. He said, pluck your eye out if it causes you. We should all be pirates right now like a Tybee. We should all be walking around. Why not? You don't believe in a literal interpretation? No, because you understand there's things called figures of speech and metaphors and similes, and you're to take those things into account when you interpret, right? The Bible uses the language of observation. It's a sunset. It's not an earth rotation, right? It's, a, it's not the atmosphere or the oxygen. It's the sky, okay? And so it uses those things. You need to understand that. Um, uses idioms. For instance, some of you have asked, well, sometimes, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to be in the ground. Three days and three nights, I'm going to be in the ground. Well, what, what, Jesus was only in the ground Friday, Friday, Saturday, came out Sunday. He wasn't in three nights. Did he lie? Was he wrong? Did they miscount? Well, if you understand that three days and three nights is a Hebrew idiom for any part of any three days, ah, oh, that makes sense. But getting into the original as best as possible is helpful. Take into account the genre. All right? You do not read specific everything the same no no one reads you get a sweet little email from your wife or a little letter a little tweet i can't wait to see you tonight kids are gone you're going to read that differently than an email from your boss okay you're going to read it just it's going to be different you're going to you get a letter from the irs on april 14th and a letter from your kid you're going to read them differently you're going to read it differently than the back of a betty crocker box why because it's a different genre and when you come to scripture, poetry, you read it, read it like poetry. Figures of speech, comparisons, right? Figurative language, you read narrative like narrative, you read a letter like in a letter, you read apocalyptic literature. There's different principles that apply, and so you need to take those into account um, when you're reading them. You need to take into account the context of the book, the context of the chapter you're reading in, in the context of the entire Bible. None of you have seem to have a problem with wearing polyester. Some of y'all rocking it this morning, right? Some of you are wearing mixed blends. Don't you guys realize that in Leviticus it says don't mix your clothes? You should be wearing either all cotton or all wool, y'all. All right? That's good Christians. How come some of y'all are cutting your hair too, around the edges? Some of y'all are shaving it all off. Don't you realize Leviticus says don't do that? So why are some of y'all not listening to the, you don't believe in the literal interpretation? That's why. Is that why, or is it because there's a context that that was Old Testament law, that that was Mosaic law, we're not under the law anymore? There's principles there, but we're not under obligation to follow those things. I'm eating hot dogs, and I'm loving it, <laughs> right? Getting to heaven quicker, baby. <laughs> okay? So, understanding the how, where it fits in the context of the entire Bible, that's important. And we do this all the time, we rip verses out, of, we have pet verses, probably, and I'm not trying to insult you if you're sending your son off to graduation this year and you want to write a couple great verses for him, but I'm going to take some of your secret favorite verses and show you what they really mean. Um, here's, a, here's a famous one, here's a small group verse. This is our favorite small group verse, y'all. Everyone ready? Okay, let's pray, y'all, and let's just remember, where two or where three are gathered in my name there I am among them. Oh man, that's good stuff. As if he's not there when you're alone in your closet. <laughs> but now we got three people, God's got to show up. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But what's, what is Jesus talking about? Let's read the entire context. Okay, it's church Discipline. Jesus is talking about church discipline. Go down a little bit. says, if, if the person refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then he tells the apostles, I say to you, wherever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two agree on earth about anything they'll ask, it'll be done. Why? For, for more two or three gathered in my name, I'm there. This is God's giving his authority to exercise discipline in his church. It has nothing to do with your small group. Okay? Now, I know. I, I just hurt some feelings. I'm sorry. All right, I ruined some small, that was the best small group last week until now, now it's done. <laughs> all right, here's another one, famous one, man, this is it, it's so in the back of all your teenage Bibles, I can do all things through Christ, He strengthens me, I can kick field goals and make three-pointers for Jesus, I can do it all, because it's God who strengthens me. Now that is true, you may be able to do those things, but is that what Paul was talking about? This is what he was talking about. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be abound and in every circumstance, in any circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying I know how to be content wherever I am at, whether I have a ton or nothing. Why? Because Christ strengthens me. It's not about kicking field goals. Sorry, Peyton Manning. Okay, you know it's it's not. Now go out and kick them. It's great. Make three pointers. Make holes and ones for the Lord. But don't use this verse as your as your reasoning for being able to do so, okay? Because what if you miss it? Oh, sorry. That was Philippi- Philippians 4.12, not 13. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, it! Right? And then you can, I could go on and on. You know, Jeremiah 29, that's a favorite verse of grandmothers everywhere. He plans to prosper you. Who's he talking? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. He's talking about Israel and Babylon going back to the land of Israel. Now, God does have plans to prosper his people because he's gonna take us to heaven and be with them. But sometimes there's suffering involved first. Sometimes there's struggle along the way. And if you're just throwing this out, like I got plans to prosper you. What about the guy who loses his job? Is that a plan to prosper him? Right. the promise is for Israel going back into the land after captivity for 70 years. That's what that's about. So, so pay attention to the context is the message, all right? And if you don't have like, if you, if you need help, there's a lot of resources online. There's background commentaries. There's, there's figures of speech books. Just get a good ESV study Bible, y'all. It's a great investment. It'll help you a ton with background information and stuff. But let's look at our our verse, Acts 1-8. What does this mean to the original audience? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It it means a ton to them, considering that Jesus is about to leave, right? That he's gonna leave, So, but he hasn't left them as orphans, that he has given them power. It means that they are powerless without the Holy Spirit. It means that he has a plan for them. There's a a goal that they're there to be witnesses, all right, and the key to witnessing is, is his Holy Spirit. It's the first time in all of human history where God is going to indwell his people. That's a significant thing. You know, in, periodically in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon individuals, but at, from this point on, the Spirit is going to come on the church forever and seal them and indwell them. Those are significant things of what it meant to them, right? Next hand. Now we start talking about some more, a little bit more specifics. What does this piece, passage teach us about God? J.I. Packer says this, first thing he asks scripture is not what it tells me about myself, but what does it tell me about my God? What does this passage teach about God? It's an important question because Jesus says in John 6 to the Pharisees, y'all search the scriptures because you think in these you have eternal life, but these bear witness of me. The scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation speak of Christ. And so what does the passage teach about the work of Christ, who God is, his Holy Spirit, his character, his nature? What does he want you to know about himself from his word? Great question to ask, right? What does Acts 1 teach us about God? That he is the only source of power, right? That that he will indwell his people, that you are not, your witnesses—you are not CBC's witnesses; that you are His witnesses, right? There's all sorts of things that God teaches us about Himself in this little, this this one little verse. That He has a desire to make Himself known. Otherwise, He doesn't need witnesses, right? So we're to bear witness of Him. Teaches a lot about God. And then after you've asked that, then you say, "What does the passage teach about?" Me now. What does it teach about humanity? My need, my response to Him, uh, my propensities, my issues, my identity. What does it teach? Does it teach anything? Right? And again, in Acts 1, it teaches that you're not witnessing to yourself, you're witnessing to someone else. It teaches you that you have no power in yourself. I mean, just information alone and hanging out with Jesus for three years is not enough. You would think Peter would have a pretty good handle on all this stuff, right? He doesn't need anything. He's been to the seminary with Jesus. No, you are not effective as witnesses until you have the Spirit. You are not empowered until the Spirit comes. So it teaches you about the weakness, clearly, of, of what we are apart from God. Um, teaches us that now he's indwelling us, all sorts of things, all right? So after we got all those things, this is where we kind of start moving now into the application phase, so to speak. And this is important because application is where we want to go. Remember, the word of God is living and active. It's sharp as any two-edged sword. It pierces. And so the, the goal there is to move the heart so that we, and the affections, so that we, so we move the actions. The scripture is inspired by God, profitable teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That Christ has prepared good works beforehand that we might walk in them. So the goal is so that we know what God has said and that we follow him and that we listen to him, Right? And so you asking questions like, is there a command I need to obey? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise? Is there a condition that I need to meet? Is there, is there a challenge to face? Is all these things, you've got to start thinking through, okay, what does this look like flushed out in my life? Because all sorts of, there's all sorts of substitutes that we make for application. We will substitute a lot of things for application. One of the things we'll substitute for application is understanding. We think, if I understand the text, then I've applied it. Mm-mm. Just because you get it doesn't mean you've done it. Just because you can even articulate it doesn't mean you've done it. David articulated how evil adultery and murder was and didn't even see that Nathan was saying, you are the man. He was able to preach it and not even see that he wasn't doing it. Right. So don't substitute just the knowledge of it for actually doing it. Don't substitute superficial obedience for real obedience. And what I mean by that is Applying it to areas of your life that you're already applying it to. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Well, I had our neighbors over last week, so we're good to go then. All very good. I'm supposed to be generous. I was last year. That's great. Well, ignore the poor guy over here because I was generous already. I already am. I'm good. So Don't you? Oh, I'm good. That's for someone else. Or maybe we rationalize instead of a bang. Yeah, I need to hear that, but I don't need to hear it as bad as my wife. So we'll wait till she comes to where I'm at, and then we'll go, right? Or I'm not as bad as them, but we're, we're all in process, and when I'm ready to handle that, I'll, I'll move in that area, but I'm just not ready for that yet. It sounds real spiritual, right? But it's rationalization. Or we substitute an emotional experience for, for obedience. Oh, it was that passion, and it was great, and I was crying, and my hands were up, and it was phenomenal, and man, it was a great time, and our life never changes. Because we had an emotional experience, but we never actually did anything, right? But we can be deceived into thinking, yeah, that was great. I did it all. And so what, is, what am I supposed to do? What does God want me to do now? I've learned about him. I've learned about myself. I, I know what the text says. I, I, what, what do I need to, to do? What does this look like in action, right? What, based on Acts 1-8, what action maybe? Maybe I need to start thinking about how am I going to be a witness, Am I a witness? Maybe I need to start thinking about, um, am I too independent of God? Am I trying real hard to do a lot of things and trying to convince my husband by putting books by the toilet and making him pray before meals, but he really doesn't even believe? Maybe I'm trying real hard, but I'm not asking God to move in him. Maybe I'm trying to be this great witness by being this you know, kind of weirdo at work, but I'm not asking God to open people's hearts and I'm not asking God to move in people and bring up conversations. I'm trying to force my way in. So start asking, oh, okay, what does that look like? And then you apply it to these contexts. What does it say about how I should change, I mean, what does the passage change, how does the passage change the way I should treat others? I mean, what what does it look like to see this in all the contexts of my relationships in my life? My relationship with my wife, my kids, my neighbors, my boss, my employees, my employers, the government, the power company, uh, whoever it is, even, even my relationship with God. Is there something I need to repent over? Is there something I need to, to apologize for? All these things. Ask, life is the context of relationships. And so just applying the principles from the text into each relationship or into one that it fits really well, Right? That that's where it's at, and it's not like it's gonna go to every single relationship. You and your dog, and you, know, you and your, but it can go to relationships that your, your your life is about, right? Because Christianity is just a new series of relationships. What does this look like in my application of my relationships in my community group in the church down the line, right? And so again, you go to Acts one eight. You say, okay, I'm a, I'm supposed to be a witness. Maybe my application is. I haven't even been thinking about anybody else but myself lately. I'm just kind of living my life with, about me, just a bit about me, about me and my job, about me and my this, about being my boyfriend, about me and my plans, and me and my this. And I haven't even thought about my neighbor. The only thing I think about my neighbor is when his dog comes in my yard. I don't care if he's going to heaven or hell, I just want his dog out of my yard. And so maybe the application is, I need to repent, and then I need to just welcome his dog. And then welcome him. Or buy him a scooper or something for a Christmas. <laughs> I yeah. Something. Maybe that's that Or maybe the application is, I mean, I've been trying real hard to do all these things, but I've, I haven't been real dependent on God. I've been trying to break this pornography. I've been trying to break this addiction, this whatever. And I've been, you know, trying real hard, try real hard, try real hard, but I haven't been asking the spirit of God to empower me. I haven't been going there. I haven't been meditating on some truth in scripture to, that might give me power over this. I've just been trying to do 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 do, so maybe that's the application, right? I don't know, but that that's for you and the spirit of God to work out in your time. Um, but that's the idea. What does it look like in these relationships? And then you close with kind of, hey, how do I pray? Let's put feet to this prayer. Let's kind of get going. Let's pray, God, I want you to teach me to be more dependent on you. Boom, what does that look like? I don't know. Here, God, I want, I want you to give me opportunities to love on my neighbor well. Does that mean mowing his lawn? Does that mean walking his dog so he doesn't go in my yard? What does that look like? Start opening those doors and look for God to move. Look for God to start changing us. I mean, just, just think about the implications, y'all. If we have eight, 900 people on a Sunday morning-ish, whatever, and we got... Eight, nine hundred people that are coming to the throne of grace every day, asking God to make them more like Jesus, looking for opportunities to love a lost city, to be the hands and feet of Christ. What, what kind of an impact would that group of people have? I mean, greatness day. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about gathering for, for encouraging and then scattering to go be the hands and feet of Christ in the, lip, in the mouthpiece of Christ. That's a lot of missionaries in one little area. I mean, really. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Let's just start in Jerusalem, and then we'll talk about the ends of the earth. But that's the idea of just you, one spirit-empowered, spirit-filled Christian, walking day by day with the Savior, sensitive to his voice and his promptings, repenting of sin when when you failed, and coming back to the grace of Christ, loving unconditionally. Serving joyfully wherever he has you, whether it's Savannah Arts Academy, Gulfstream, Hunter Army Airfield, you know, Richmond Hill, whatever it is, just, man, that's, that's significant. That's power, right? And y'all, it's, it's, you don't have to have a degree in hermeneutics. Just these, these little principles, start asking these little questions, come to the text humbly, prayerfully, man, what's the main idea? What does it mean to them? What does it teach me about God, about myself? What does it encourage me to do? How should I tr- what does it change about how I should treat others? And how do I pray to, to put feet to this? Anyone can understand the Bible. I'm not saying go start studying Ezekiel now because you want to know what the wheel in the sky is. I mean, I'm not saying that. Start easy. Don't go jumping into the apocalypse now, in Revelation 9 or something. But God wants us, He has given us His Spirit so that we might understand the freely the things given to us by God. He wants you to delight in him. He wants you to draw near to him. He's a loving father who has things to tell you, things to say. He wants you to be, be close. He wants you to see that in his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So come humbly, come hungry, come prayerfully. Just asking him to speak to you, to make you more like his son. So That's what we want to be. And I hope that just after these three weeks, that'll be your desire. I hope that this week you'll open the Bible, read through the book of James a couple times since we're going to jump in it next week. It's your homework. Read through the book of James every day this week in preparation for next Sunday. Just start asking some of these questions. Start writing some of those things down. Start enjoying your relationship with this great God who loves you. All right? Let's stand and let's uh, Let's worship. Father, I thank you for revealing yourself, your son, through your word. I thank you that he, our perfect savior, left heaven, died on a cross for our sins as our substitute, and rose again that we might have eternal life. And if someone in this room this morning doesn't know that, Father, did heaven put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, just pray even now your spirit would be drawing and moving and showing them their need for a savior. That you have spoken, that you are true, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through you and that you have cared and loved them so much that you you died in their, in their place, Lord Jesus. I open their eyes to that. For us who have come to that great saving faith and knowledge, Lord, that way we be a church that continually draws near to you. Even though our sin will keep us from you, it'll, it'll make us run away like the prodigal, but Lord, that you would, just like, like the Father there, that you would welcome us back, that you would draw us back, that you would woo us back to yourself, and that we wouldn't let those things put a a block in our fellowship that we would just draw near to you, Lord, um, that we wouldn't let the enemy lie and uh, convince us that we are unloved, that we are uncared for, that we that you won't welcome us back because we know you always do. Um, Lord, just, I just pray that this would be a series that the fruit is long-lasting, that the people would start hearing your voice more in their lives, that you would be shaping them and that they would be loving you. Uh, that's what I ask, Lord, for your name's sake, I pray. Amen.